The following has been brought to you by SJP World Media. You people, you know who I am. But you don't know why I'm here. This is where the big boys play, huh? Look at the adjective. Play. CW Monday Nitro, where the big boys play every Monday night at 8 on TNT. Hello and welcome to Nitro Nights, a WCW look back podcast. My name is Sai. Uh, I am your well, one half of your hosting duo, and joining me as always to cover a pay-per-view, and we do bloody love pay-per-view day, to cover a pay-per-view on this episode of Nitro Nights is the always entertaining, always informative wrestling encyclopedia himself, Scottish Danny. How are you doing, bud? Greetings from the beach where we're recording this, aren't we, Si? <laughs> It's causing havoc with my equipment, mate. It's causing havoc with my equipment. Sand getting <laughs> everywhere. And when I say equipment, I, uh, I'm referring to my laptop, etc. Not anything else. Dang Griffin. <laughs> you know where your mind will have gone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's that's correct, Danny. We are on, you know, looking at a pay-per-view on the beach. Bash at the Beach, 1996. Possibly, possibly one of the most talked about pay-per-views of all time. Possibly one of the most historical pay-per-views of all time. Possibly one of the most important pay-per-views of all time because we get to see joe gomez wrestle so that's quite a quite a feat for us danny i think it is yeah giving him a match on the pay-per-view is definitely worth talking about <laughs> <laughs> indeed it is indeed it is uh this this pay-per-view show uh, came to us from daytona beach as danny has mentioned the attendance was 8,300 billed as a sellout on the July 7th, 1996 evening, but actually only 6,400 paid to get in. This gave the WCW a uh, gate of $72,000 made on the night, which was actually one of the lowest of the year when you look at other pay per views and other buy rates that people were. Uh, you know, other ticket sales and so on for different events. On the pay-per-view end of the spectrum, though, it received 175,000 pay-per-view buys, which was actually the second highest of the year, joint with a couple of other pay-per-views and only actually beaten by Starcade at the end of the year. So, I mean, I think people need to remember as well that, yes, this is the, that that night. This is the night, the, the Outsiders storyline uh, really kicks off here. It's the hostile takeover match as the main event. Um, we all know what happens. Danny and I will get to that shortly. But everyone looks back on this night as being massive and huge and starting so much in the business 
on both sides of the wrestling war, I guess. But you need to remember, I guess, that this is this is where it starts. In mid ninety six, wrestling was still in the toilet. Wrestling was still not making money. The WWF were really struggling. Uh, you know, Jim Ross tells stories about the water coolers being taken out of the offices in early ninety six and so on because they couldn't afford to pay for them. And yeah, so whereas this is a huge historic night with regards to creative and where the companies went and where the business went. July 7th, 1996, the business as a whole, actually, on that specific date, is still in the crapper, I think, Danny. Yeah, that's just insane. I mean, when you think about where wrestling would be two years after this, or even three years after this, just making money, putting WCW logos on golf balls, even, just something like that. It's just just crazy. It is. It is indeed. Uh, The pay-per-view begins with shots of the main event participants. The hostile takeover is what it's being billed as. And we have some very, I suppose, generic stock music probably taken from the Turner vaults somewhere playing over the the video package and highlights and, and almost like a recap of what's gone on with regards to Hall and Nash arriving and who is the third man and all that good stuff. Uh, Our commentary team for the evening is Bobby the Brain Heenan, Tony Schiavone, and the always entertaining Dusty Rhodes. But to start the pay-per-view, we are joined by Mike Tanay, which means we must be getting a match that involves wrestlers that aren't necessarily, at this stage in their career, sort of linked heavily with WCW or the US. So they need a bit of help on commentary, Danny, don't they? Yeah, definitely. And they tag in the always brilliant uh, Mike Tanay, who uh, joins for commentary for this opener. Indeed, indeed. And the opener is Psychosis, and he is facing uh, Rey Mysterio Jr. Now, on on the you know, cards on the table, I love this. I thought this was fantastic. What did you think, Danny? Have you seen much of Psychosis? No, not too much. Um, I, I know he had a short little run in WWE in the 2000s, but other than that, um, haven't really seen much of him. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you, you're going to see quite a bit in our in our little project here on Nitro Nights, watching WCW back show by show. You're going to be taking quite a few psychosis matches. Um, so what did you think of him here then in 96? You say you said a little bit of his WWE run. Uh, was he part of the, the Mexicals? Yeah, yeah, that was right. it. It was a terrible gimmick, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, a little teeny, teeny bit racist. But um, <laughs> as is the WWF sometimes. So I, I can remember the Mexicals and they did a lot of tags and six-man tags and, and, and so on. But this is a, a one-on-one match given plenty of time. So what are your thoughts to Psychosis here? And also your thoughts to this match in general, I guess. Oh, just absolutely brilliant. Um a perfect way to kick off a giant pay-per-view like this. Um, yeah, you really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, it, it was great. It was very, very good. I mean, before we dive into what happened, we're, we're getting question marks of where is Eric Bischoff? Uh, the commentary team seem quite concerned, and they even suggest, has he been kidnapped? Nobody has heard <laughs> from him all day. And, you know, that they're appealing for him to get in contact and so on, which we'll, we'll come to again a bit later on. The match starts with... There was quite a lot of uh, of mat-based wrestling, which is interesting considering how often these two guys would fly through the air, I suppose. But with, with their talents that both of these competitors have, I suppose it's a, it's a similar way to how some heavyweight wrestlers might start a little bit more punchy-kicky, a little bit more clotheslines and running the ropes and, and the usual things we see. And then they build up to their high spots 
these guys opening the match with the likes of a half crab, a bow and arrow, and exchanging arm bars, it might be just their beginning of the match before they speed up and start hitting their higher spots, Danny, maybe. Yeah, definitely. They're 100% working up to the big spots. Um, something I was very impressed with um, the commentary with Mike today is the fact that he explained that Rey Mysterio and Psychosis actually were in the midst of having an eight-year feud at this point as well. I mean, you, that is those little touches you just wouldn't know unless you had someone like Mike today on the commentary. Yeah, and I'm going to come to today in a moment because I wasn't too happy with a couple of things that that, that happened on this uh, this opener in regards to commentary, to be honest. But we'll come to that in a moment. Uh, after we have a sort of, I wouldn't say slow opening because it's not by any stretch of imagination. I don't think these guys can do anything slow at this point in 96. No. <laughs> but um, we, we then sort of up the ante a little bit and we start hitting, you know, we start seeing some moonsaults, uh, some suicide dives to the outside by psychosis. Um, there's a really impressive leg drop off the top rope. Psychosis is in control for for a huge portion of this match, to be fair. Uh, Ray sends him into the pole, which is therefore a match later on in the card. The, the, the tall pole that sort of comes out above the top two buckles. And then we get some crazy Hurricane Runners from Ray Mysterio on the outside and then on the inside for a near four. Uh, and we, we get all this, you know, just it just gets faster and faster and faster. Uh, we get sent a sent on by psychosis to the outside, which was incredible. The Ray Ray jumps off the top rope onto psychosis, and he he gets some height with that, Danny, doesn't he? Yeah, it was massive, and this is where the point I um, was absolutely shocked to see that actually psychosis is actually really tall, isn't he? Yeah, he's quite gangly, I suppose. I mean, mm. to be wrestling that style or call himself a cruiserweight or whatever obviously weight wise he hasn't got much to him but yeah he is he is quite tall and i mean ray makes him look tall don't get me wrong but he is he is pretty tall yeah so he kind of looks he kind of gangly like like a spider monkey or a daddy long legs or something yeah definitely and then he goes for a um, he tries for a splash mountain at one point as well and ray reverses it with a hurricanrana which i thought was very impressive as well yeah and that that's the actual finish isn't it it's from the top rope and it looks spectacular and the crowd pop huge for that yeah. and so do the commentary team to be fair the commentary team pop huge because some of the guys on commentary they're seeing things they've never seen before i'm assuming the yeah. way they're reacting on this particular evening and that brings me to a few points i want to bring up about the commentary i mean first of all dusty Rhodes seems genuinely impressed with the match and genuinely impressed with mike Tenay's knowledge and the calling of moves that he doesn't know or hasn't seen before. Dusty seems genuinely taken aback with with how good this is and how professional and well-informed Mike Tanay is. But that kind of turns a little bit in a while because you almost get Bobby Heenan and Tony Schiavone, I don't want to say bullying or picking on Mike Tanay, but it almost sounds a little bit like they're mocking him. They're, they're sort of making fun of the fact that he knows these names. Um, I mean, at one point, Bobby the Brain Heenan says, where do you get all these names? And this is after an insiguri by psychosis. I mean, in 1996, an insiguri is not an alien concept in an American wrestling match, by the way. Yeah. Uh, Tony Schiavone then states, oh, if you don't know them, you can just make them up. Dusty then, you know, defends Tanay a little bit. But it's, I mean, I don't know if this was an attempt at a little bit of banter. With Bobby Heenan and Tony Schiavone, I don't know if this was a little bit of fun, them trying to sort of just, you know, 
you know, lads, 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 and all that sort of nonsense. I don't know if that was the the feeling with that, or I don't know if they felt threatened because Tanay was doing such a good job and they didn't even know what some of these moves were, never mind know the proper terminology for them. But it felt, it, it did feel a little bit like they were mocking the guy just for being good at his job. Yeah, I could see that as well, mate. It was kind of like, okay, we're the um, the main guys and you're just a wrestling nerd that knows too much, that kind of vibe. Mm, yeah, it weren't a good look. But with regards to the match itself, I mean, today's work is fantastic, but with regards to the match itself, it's a great opener, I think. It does exactly what it needs to, gets the crowd into, into the show, gets the crowd excited. Um, everyone's off their feet at the finish. I, I thought this was bloody brilliant. Oh, just almost 20 minutes of a solid opener. Very, very good way to start a pay-per-view. Yeah, I'd recommend anyone goes back and checks this match out if they have not seen it yet. It is very, very good. And we said it before on the show, Danny. We said it before in previous episodes of Nitro Nights about Rey Mysterio and that the majority of wrestling fans, especially of a certain age, will know Rey Mysterio from his WWE run. Yeah. When he is considerably heavier. He's he's put on a lot more muscle mass. Uh, that just must be down to I'm going to say good diet and weightlifting, maybe. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he's put on a great deal of muscle mass there. His style is still pretty spectacular and high flying, but he's had various knee. Problems. I mean, he's had, I think mean, you're looking at like 20 surgeries, 20 knee surgeries, aren't you, Ray Mysterious? Had or something stupid yeah. like that. It's a crazy number. He's had back problems as well. He's obviously carrying this extra muscle mass. So he's a different performer in his WWE days than he was here. Yeah. This, a- yeah, this here, 1996, Rey Mysterio is much leaner, faster. This is pre-injury. Obviously, he's younger. That goes without saying. But if anyone wants to see how good Rey Mysterio really was, I would suggest going back to WCW at this time. Yeah, well said, mate. And as, as you said, it's just... Um just because he's younger here it does make a world of difference but there was one point in this match where Rey Mysterio hit his knee on the guardrail and it absolutely looked painful didn't it well maybe that resulted in one of those four million knee surgeries I don't know (laughs) but yes it didn't look a good it didn't look a good uh, a good hit did it so but there we go there we go uh, we follow this up with an interview with the United States champion, Conan. Here's with Mean Gene, who is, again, all over this show. He's definitely earning his pennies this evening. And Conan basically just talks about how he's the United States champion. He's going to retain this title later on against Ric Flair. And he's not scared of any four horsemen interference. So, or any interference from Flair's entourage, he says. That, that's not going to bother him, he says. Mm. Oh, interesting. Has he not been watching the nitros that he's been uh, performing on? <laughs> wow, it's funny you mentioned that. Conan says he's not scared of any interference from the outside with regards to all the people that associate with Flair. Mm. Let's see how that goes for him later in the evening. Because <laughs> before we get there, we have our first of our stipulation matches, which it seems pretty much every match on the card, barring the opener, has some stipulation or some added stakes to it or or some you know variation to an ordinary straightforward one-on-one contest i think the opener may be the only one-on-one oh no we get mongo and gomez later on don't we yeah yeah but this is one of the many that has a stipulation or an, an added uh, facet to the to the contest and it's one that i i'm not gonna lie danny i was not looking forward to whatsoever uh yeah. it 
It's Big Bubba versus John Tenter for what seems like now the 86th time. And I mean, these guys have wrestled each other to the point where I'm as sick of these two wrestling each other as much as I am the Nasty Boys and Public Enemy. Yeah, brilliantly said, mate. But do you know what? I, I feel the same way until it was last week when we discussed that this match is a silver dollars on a pole match. And when I actually looked up the concept, it's actually um, WWE ripped this concept off and called it a biker chain match, which is one of my top favorite matches. Is a biker ah. chain match. It's basically um, the the uh, the rules are you can, as long as you can get the weapon that's on the pole, you can use it as a as a weapon. Mm. But it was like. Okay, as soon as I saw how high that bloody pole was, si, I was like, no way any of these guys are getting up there. <laughs> yeah, this is the thing. It's not It's not like a ladder. I mean, th- let's be straight here. Let's be honest. We've got Bubba and Tenta, who are two, shall we say, super heavyweights. It's probably a, yeah. a, a polite way of putting this. They are big, big guys. Now, if you saw fellas this big in a ladder match, that would be a bit, oh my goodness, is this is this a good idea? How are they going to be okay getting up the ladders and so on? But at least with a ladder match, there's foot runs. There's places to place your hands. There's stuff you can climb. This here, the, 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 the silver dollars on top of a pole match. Basically, there's the coins in a, a little sack or a sock of some description. And it's hanging on the top of the pole. And these guys have to climb the pole to get the weapon to use it. This pole is so insanely high. I'm looking at it and I'm thinking there is no way on earth either of those guys are getting up. That is just so instantly. I'm more interested straight away. It's piqued my interest. It's piqued my curiosity because I'm thinking, okay, this now has got me. How are they going to get that weapon down? Yeah. Because neither. First of all, if one of those guys makes it at the pole, that's something I want to see because that's going to be a spectacular vision. Or if they don't, how are they going to get it down? Because that you can't have this match and not involve the weapon advertised. I mean, I suppose it's WCW. You, you probably bloody could, but <laughs> but they won't on a pay per view. I, I would hope anyway. So that straight away you know piqued my interest. I was I was curious as to how this was going to work, uh, and I think they got around it quite cleverly, Danny. They did, um, and this is one of the times that Jimmy Hart really, um, I mean, without going too much into it yet, but he really earned his money on this. I, I hope he was paid double for climbing that high. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at the start of the match as well, actually, before we dive into, I was going to say before we dive into the action, but I think that's <laughs> potentially the wrong term. Um, we get a good look at the, the set of the entranceway for the first time. The camera kind of spans across the whole entrance where in the WWE it would be referred to as the Titatron, I suppose. Yeah. And it's a beach setting, you know, complete with sand, surfboards, a life, um, a lifeguard's little hut on a stand and so on. What did you think of the, the entrance way, Danny? It's very, to me, it's very simple, but effective. What did you think? Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was like, um, it wasn't too much. Uh, I mean, we always talk about wrestling today, having too much uh, special effects and things like that. But this, I really liked. Yeah, it's a funny one. You, you mentioned the special effects. I mean, uh, as you know, time of recording, today is the 28th of January. So Danny and I are recording this um, a few hours before the Royal Rumble pay-per-view is promoted by WWE. 
So over the weekend, over the last couple of days, I watched Monday Night Raw and I scanned quickly through SmackDown. First time I've done that in a very long time. And the the computer graphics is something that really stood out to me mm. because, I mean, sometimes it looks cool. Sometimes some of the graphics do look quite spectacular. Like when you get the, the glittering diamond effect when Charlotte Flair makes her entrance and so on, it adds to the production. But sometimes they're so big and overpowering and ridiculous that it kind of takes away from what you're trying to watch on the television as well. Yeah. Obviously, you, you're a big WWE guy, Danny, and I'm assuming you, you still watch a great deal of the weekly product as well. Uh, what do you think of these these modern day graphics now? I mean, is this something you like or is this something you wish they would get rid of? Or, you know, what are your thoughts? I, it's a bit too much for me. Um, I think here and there are a little bit, uh, just a little bit sprinkled in like it was in the 2000s. Um, I think they've taken it way too overboard. When you start putting LED screens on the ring apron, I'm not a fan of that because it stops wrestlers um, kind of brawling into the ring apron or, again, thrown into the ring aprons, stuff like that. So I think a little bit too much, yeah. Mm, Yeah, I think you're right. I suppose it's just... (laughs) You know, everything moves on. There's an evolution to everything. Mm. Uh, I, I like, you know, a few fireworks, a bit of a screen playing. Th- that'll do me. I also think as well, it can be a bit lazy because you look at all the pay-per-views now in WWE. All the entrance ways are the same. Yeah. I mean, Mania is different, obviously, because it's WrestleMania. And you look at the Rumble, where that is held now in the last couple of years, these baseball stadiums and so on. They use the, I suppose, the dressing rooms and the tunnel that come up from the floor. I think of Edge's return with that. And that's quite a unique way of doing things as well. But the majority of TV shows and the majority of bigger events, you've got the same same screens, same entranceway, same titletron, whatever you want to call it. I think it's a bit lazy because I used to love the individual sets that would change so armageddon would be the big flaming castle and backlash would have the big metal hooks swinging and all that sort of stuff uh king of the ring i think had a big throne didn't it yeah Is that correct yeah yeah um i like all those yeah it adds but, to the uniqueness doesn't it yeah exactly but here and i all they gotta do is click a button put some graphics on the screen and they yeah. can do that wherever they are it's almost like they now don't have to build unique sets yeah which i think is a real shame yeah, it is. It is, mate. It's also, uh, when you look back on like even a pay per view like this, and you see Hulk Hogan on that aisle way, you're like, oh yeah, I know where that's from. But if you see somewhere today where I don't know Roman Reigns would be walking down the ramp, you'd be like, I wonder where which uh, show that was from, because it would be a bit harder to tell. Yeah, yeah, spot on. Yeah, spot on. But there we go. Uh, this match. I mean, there's not masses to talk about until we get towards the end, I suppose. The match follows a very, I suppose, repetitive format. One guy tries to climb the pole, gets caught, gets slammed. The other guy tries to climb the pole, gets caught, gets slammed. Back and forth, back and forth like that for a while. It's pretty slow and pretty plodding in the early stages, which it will be with two guys of this size and and their wrestling style. Um, The pole seems quite wobbly. At first glance as well, Danny, when I'm watching this, it seems a bit, it doesn't seem very secure when the guys are trying to climb it, does it? No, it doesn't. But I love the fact that uh, as you was going into this match, you said you felt intrigued about the pole being that high. 
I honestly felt a bit let down because I I just thought to myself, no one's going to climb that. But I, I can see both points as well. Interesting. Okay. Uh, fair enough. Uh, we do get a couple of moments that I thought were quite clever, though. I mean, obviously, these guys are not going to be able to climb the pole, and we're wondering how are they going to get the weapon down. John Tenter actually tries to cut the pole or undo the pole, doesn't he? He tries to undo the sort of uh, the, the, fast, the fastenings to get the pole down to get the weapon. I thought that was quite clever. Yeah. Um, that happens again later on when Bubba, well, Bubba, you know, he chokes John Tenter with his belt. And then he has some wrist tape, which he, he tapes John Tenter to the ropes. And eventually when Bubba, get, sorry, when Tenter gets out of this with a pair of scissors he has, which was used to try and cut more of John Tenter's hair. He uses those scissors from his trim to try and cut the straps again, which, again, I thought was quite a clever use of what was already in the ring, I guess, Danny. Yeah. And also I found what was clever was Tony Schiavone name dropping Avalanche into this. Yes. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> Uh, also on the note of that with the haircut t- attempt again why has John Tenter still got half a haircut <laughs> no idea but I, I just you got to respect his um, commitment to the gimmick you really do yeah I suppose I suppose uh, we get a spine buster by Bubba and he sends Jimmy Hart up the pole and as this happens the, the, the weapon is passed down um, Tenta wallops Bubba with the coins and wins. And the crowd did pop for the finish of this, didn't they? And yeah. then Mean Gene then talks with Team WCW straight afterwards and talks about who the third man is going to be and so on. We'll come to that in a sec. But the the match itself, Danny, your, your, your thoughts on this one and the finish? It was... Um... It was a lot better than their previous outings because I think because the crowd was more into it about, especially towards the ending. And I did write down, it, despite my problems with it, it was a logical ending. And hopefully this will be the end of the feud. <laughs> well, yeah, hopefully, hopefully. Um, I, I thought this was very slow. I thought it was too long as well. I don't know if it felt long because it was so slow. Um, the finish was quite clever, I guess, but I, I'm the same as you, Danny. I don't want to see these two wrestle again for a little while. Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned, Gene is talking with Team WCW at this point, and <laughs> uh, we, we basically get told they don't care who the third man is. Macho Man is acting even extra, more crazy, like a complete lunatic, even more so than usual, which takes some doing. But it's the comments made by Sting that I want to ask you about, Danny. They're cutting this promo about the Outsiders and who the third man is. And they've really dismissed it straight off the bat, saying they don't care who he is. They're going to win anyway, which is fine. Sting then starts talking about how it's the unknown because they don't know who the third man is. They can't prepare for the third man. And apparently the unknown gives him a dry mouth. <laughs> now, I'm not 100% sure how that works or even what that what that entails, what, what's going on with that. Did, did you make any sense of this promo? No, but I'm assuming maybe it's something to do with the beach and maybe he's really thirsty because he's been on the beach all day. Ah, okay, maybe, maybe. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The next contest is another singles match, but one with another stipulation. We have a taped fist match between Diamond Dallas Page and Jim Duggan. Uh, And this, I'm puzzled by this because this is a taped fist match, but they used tape in the previous contest. 
which again they didn't tape their fists up and start throwing punches but they had the tape they taped tenta to the ropes and all this sort of stuff and it just seems like well i think that's unusual and i think that's a bit of a, a bit of a you know miscommunication maybe why would you have a spot using tape in a match that's got its own stipulation already when the very next match is built around using tape yeah it's it's very much like having a, a referee bump in in the opener and then one straight after the that, that match is finished yeah i can definitely see your point i mean mm. could they have just not used tape in the previous match yeah i mean that match wouldn't have lost anything yeah, you know, even that, that if, you, if you switched it with handcuffs, that would have yeah. uh, been more logical. But yeah, um, yeah, I'm not a massive fan of using the same thing in two uh, following matches either. To me, I mean, again, I've not been in the wrestling business. I've not been backstage, not spoken to agents or anything like that. But to me, I don't think this would happen in the WWF. I think the road agents and, and certain wrestlers as well, I think, would discuss what they're doing. And somebody said, well, I want to use this particular spot in my match. They would get told no, because it's a, an important part of a, a following match. It yeah. strikes me as a lack of communication in WCW here. Do you know what I mean? It's like, why would they e- either? Everyone knew that was going to happen, which makes no sense at all, because surely somebody would have gone, no, don't do that, because the next match is based on using tape. You know, or nobody knew it was going to happen, which means that there was no communication it just seems really strange to me yeah i can see that mate uh this match is uh, quite intriguing i guess i mean duggan is duggan does what duggan does he's a brawler he's a big guy we get the usa chance the the hose and all this sort of stuff uh but he's just basically throwing punches and doing his usual i suppose it does even in 96 it does feel a bit dated duggan's routine here Danny, doesn't it it does, and that's what I made a note of. That 90% of this match was DDP bumping for Jim Duggan. It was mm. while Duggan was doing his um, his usual stuff. Yeah, you're right, you're right. Um, early on, DDP actually taped Duggan to the ring post, which I thought was quite clever. And he removes the tape from Duggan's hands, which again I thought was quite clever because the the whole taped fist match means you can tape your hands and you'll use a clenched fist and all that sort of stuff. He's removed that from his opponent, which gives him an advantage in theory. Uh, It's just basically a term that we use on this show and numerous others as well. It's a lot of kicky punchy bullshit, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is, mate. Yeah. And then eventually we get a diamond cutter, which, you know, again, you know, pardon the pun because it's, you know, it, the RKO is a move that was basically, you know, taken from the diamond cutter, but it's, it, it, this diamond cutter comes out of nowhere. And we don't really during the match from bell to bell, get anything to do with their fists being taped. <laughs> this is insane. Ty. It really is because, um, and I was, but I was actually pleasantly surprised that DDP actually got the win. Okay. Okay, interesting. See, I, I'm kind of expecting DDP wins now. I can't remember the last time we saw Page lose a match. Yeah. And it seems like every Nitro we watch, or every Page match we watch then on Nitro or whatever, it feels like Page is winning, which is building momentum for him, of course. But he's doing it with a diamond cutter. 
And even the commentators are shouting, oh, Diamond Cutter, this one's over. Yeah. Which is getting the move over. So, yeah, I wasn't too surprised, to be honest. I, I don't see how a Duggan win here would have benefited anyone. Oh, no. You know? So, yeah, I'll, definitely. I'll, I'll, yeah. Okay. I mean, the only real taped fist stuff we get afterwards is Duggan gets pinned after the Diamond Cutter and then basically jumps up pretty quickly afterwards, which, you know, I'm not a fan of. Tapes his fist and knocks DDP out after the match. To me, that finish is fine. The baby face gets the gets his heat back. He's not the heel light. The heel has still won the match. But I didn't like the way Duggan jumped up so quickly. I mean, sell it for a moment, mate. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, definitely. But it did get a massive pop from the crowd when he did punch DDP. This is true. This is true. Uh, we are following this up with another little chat with our friend Mean Gene. And he is with the giant, Jimmy Hart and Kevin Sullivan. And they're talking about their match later on with the horseman combination of Chris Benoit and Arn Anderson. Uh, Gene's asking a few questions about the general consensus that the Taskmaster is the weak link in the Dungeon of Doom. And the giant and the Taskmaster kind of shoot this down quite quickly. But that's the whole gist of the interview, isn't it, Danny? It is, but I have to ask you a question, Sai, about this interview. Okay, mate. So... As Kevin Sullivan was sit, was standing there, just cutting his promo, did you notice how shredded he looks now? Yes, he's for, for a lot of our you know ninety five watching, I guess, when we started this project, Sullivan seemed to just be you know pottering around with, with a bit of a belly on him. Yeah, he was a little a little staunch fellow with a little beer belly on him and all that sort of stuff. It looks like he was really put some effort in, you know, or he you know. You know, took on the uh, Rey Mysterio diet that Rey used to get bigger <laughs> in WWE. But yeah, he he's he's built better. He looks fitter. He looks leaner. He's lost a bit of that belly. You know, he looks he looks very good, doesn't he? Yeah, it just looks. He's got his abs back, and he combined with his serious the way he's being booked, it's just brilliant to see. Yeah, yeah, it does well. Uh, following this, we have a guy called Lee Marshall. And he is on the entranceway interviewing Benoit and Anderson. And they endorse Team WCW, especially on Anderson. He cuts the majority of this promo, which is the way it should be. He endorses Team WCW in the main event later on, which is quite a nice touch, I feel, because it ties in other segments and other feuds uh, and those wrestlers having a viewpoint or giving support to the guys representing the company later on in the main event. Uh, sort of shows how important it is i guess it ties it all together i think yeah and it just makes the main event seem that more serious yes exactly uh, benoit again refers to himself as silent but violent it's not good at all i don't understand why if this is the scenario can't benoit just stand there looking intimidating throw up the four fingers and just let Arn talk hmm yeah, I would yeah. agree with that. It's, it's, he's definitely more threatening as a silent person rather than getting on the microphone. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But there we go. Uh, this is followed by another match of a stipulation. We have a four-man dog collar match. And this is Public Enemy versus the Nasty Boys. Now, I'm sick of seeing these guys wrestle each other, as we've mentioned on numerous occasions now on Nitro Nights. But this is a different stipulation, so I was, shall we say, mildly optimistic that we might see something different from them here. Hmm. 
yeah, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> Mildly op- optimistic. Yeah, and I'm not 100% sure if we got it or not. It, mm. it kind of... I mean, obviously, a, a dog collar match is going to be effectively no DQ. And we have uh, Joey Sags tied to Rocker Rock. And Brian Nobbs is tied by the neck to Johnny Grunge. And we, we're all on the outside straight away, just brawling everywhere, which is how most of their matches go. Um, we get the WCW split screen again to try and keep out of what's going on in the two places, which I, um, I like the fact that we can watch both at the same time because there are you know, two fights going on in different areas. But half the screen is a graphic. So even though it's a split screen, I mean, you're losing the size of what you're watching just by having the split screen on there because you've got the two separate cameras at the same time. So you're, you're going 50-50 already with what we're watching. But then half of the screen is a bloody graphic of the sea or the beach. <laughs> so what we're trying to watch, if you're watching, say, I don't know, Sags and Rocker Rock in camera number one, it's less than 25% of your TV. Yeah. Now, I don't know if this is just me being a grumpy old man with poor eyesight. But that, I don't like that. No, you're dead on, mate. I mean, we've said it since the inception of Nitro Nights. We are not fans of the double screen. I know they, that technology isn't what it was or wasn't was what it was today, but I yeah I just cannot stand. As soon as it happened, I lost interest in this match. I really did. Okay, okay, fair enough. Um, I just feel like we've seen pretty much ninety percent of this before. Mm. We have the trash can lid shots that looked like shit. By the way, they were awful shots by Rocker Rock. Yeah. Um, we see somebody, a rocker rock again, actually, but we see somebody get crotched on the guardrail on the outside. Um, Johnny Grunge bulldogs Brian Nobbs onto a chair at one point. All decent spots, but we've seen them a million and one times between these four guys. Um, a little bit of uniqueness, I suppose, just because the setting. We have Brian Nobbs using an inflatable shark that you would take to the seaside <laughs> with you as a weapon, which... On one hand, it's funny. On the other hand, this is supposed to be a wild, crazy brawl between four guys who hate each other. And he's hitting him literally with a child's inflatable. Yeah. And, and and Grunge is selling it like he's being nailed with a sledgehammer. It was. Yeah. It just looked silly, didn't it? But why didn't that they use that um, inflatable shark in John Tenter versus Big Bubba's match? Because, Danny, he's a man, not a shark. <laughs> so we don't want any Very throwbacks true. to that time. Um <laughs> uh, we do get Rocker Rock flying off the lifeguard stand, which I thought was quite decent. Um, Public Enemy set up a table because it's Public Enemy and that's what's going to happen. Sags hits a pile driver on the concrete, which did look quite decent, to be fair to him. Uh, Sags eventually hits the table, doesn't break it fully before Rocker Rock goes through with him. And at this point, I've got a note on my, um, well, notes funnily enough i've got a comment on my notes here basically saying this is too long yeah it really was and i have to say nobody has had worse luck with tables than um the public enemy at this point because it seems like every match that they have tables in they just don't seem to break on the spot that they need them to no that's right so maybe give up maybe try wrestling i don't know yeah <laughs> You know? think <laughs> maybe try to learn a couple of holds do you know what i mean oh, you can probably tell i'm not a big fan of this um <laughs> uh, eventually we get back to the ring 
Uh, Rocco Rock is on the top rope. Sags pulls the chain to send him down. Rocco Rock bounces on a table, which doesn't break. Um, <laughs> uh, Brian Nobbs then hangs Grunge over the top rope by his neck using the chain before Sags then has that chain set up almost like a clothesline to send Rocco Rock into. So if you imagine the scene, if people haven't seen this, we've got Johnny Grunge hanging over the top rope by his throat and the chain that he's attached to is stretched across the ring and the other member of Public Enemy is thrown into this and he's almost clotheslined with this chain for the win, for the Nasty Boys. Uh, which I thought was quite a clever little finish, to be fair. But, I mean, Tony Schiavone at the end of the match literally says, that was a mess. And it's like, yes, Tony, I 100% agree with you. Yeah, I made that note as well. <laughs> because um, it just, yeah, very, very logical from Tony. <laughs> that wasn't all, though. They carry on fighting after the decision, scrapping all the way. Um, and the camera cuts back to Mean Gene with them still fighting. To which, you know, to which point I've actually got a note here and it's my mindset now as it was when I watched the show back. Please, God, don't let this be any more. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But I loved um, these mean from this moment on. Mean Gene is a low key MVP of the show. He really, really uh, sells who's behind that door very very well as well he's like oh, each segment that they cut backstage to him i'm really enjoying his performances you are spot on absolutely spot on and we go to gene here now and he's with security outside the dressing room of the outsiders and of course he's not being allowed in uh he's trying to be uh, i suppose a, a journalist investigating things and trying to find that information and he's constantly asking who the third man is, which really hammers home that point of we don't know. This is this big mystery. And it's as we get closer to the main event, it really amps up the tension and, and the question over who this is going to be, doesn't it? Yeah. And you're totally invested in it. Exactly. Um, someone who I'm surprised, shall we say, that I'm mildly invested in now is the Disco Inferno. <laughs> I'm finding this guy so entertaining. He really does make me laugh. And he is in our next contest. He is taking on Dean Malenko for the Cruiserweight title. And, uh, I mean, first of all, Disco Inferno comes out dressed all in orange, dancing away, gets the microphone and says, when he wins, everyone's invited to a disco dance party. And I just want to say, Danny, I would go to that party. Absolutely, mate. I mean, that should be fun. <laughs> but we knew, uh, watching this, as soon as I watched it, I was like, there's no way he's winning. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, Dean Malenko on the other hand is all business when he comes to the ring very serious which is Malenko's way and that's fine Uh, and I think it's a real interesting contrast between the almost cartoony comedy character of Disco Inferno and the deadly serious you know man of a thousand holds wrestling machine that is Dean Malenko Uh, I think it's quite an interesting contrast that works really really well for me yeah Malenko starts the match and basically dominates for huge portions of this. We get some uh, some excellent power moves, some some good submission holds. I mean, Malenko hits a vicious-looking brainbuster on Disco Inferno uh, before he starts working one of Disco's legs. We have a half crab that he turns into an STF, 
Uh, at this point, the commentators are, are, are talking about Eric Bischoff again and saying they're still very much worried about Eric Bischoff. And if he was just in his hotel or at home watching the pay-per-view, they would have had contact off him to say he was okay, but nobody's heard of him still. So that's interesting. Uh, the Disco Inferno fights back, but his offense is a lot more punchy kicky, I guess, Danny. Yeah, and what I love about this match is they're keeping it to both uh, performers' strengths. As uh, Disco is best served as selling as a selling heel, as like and Di Malenko. Like I said um, earlier in the previous match, this was ninety percent Di Malenko. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think it works fantastically. Well. Yeah, it works really well. Uh, eventually, they end up on the outside of the ring. Di Malenko takes back control of the contest out there. Uh, before Disco Inferno manages to counter a double axe handle from the top rope and then turn it into a neckbreaker, which I thought was very good. But eventually we get Dimonenko attempting a cloverleaf hold, which is his finish. That gets countered into a roll-up, though, which is a bit of a surprise, before the second attempt at the cloverleaf gets the submission from Disco Inferno. Now, this match went on quite a few minutes. It's a character who, in ring, I don't think has ever shown us much at this point in his career, up till now, to get excited about in the Disco Inferno. We all know how great Dean Malenko is and how big a fan of Malenko I am. But there's little touches in this match. We've laughed at Disco for being okay losing a match as long as his hair looks good. And we've laughed at Disco for not going for a cover because he's fixing his hair or has a bit of a dance. And all that sort of stuff, you know, he, he tapped out very quickly before a hold was applied because he didn't want the hold to be put on his arm and affect his dancing and all that sort of silly stuff. Here, Disco Inferno almost, almost to the point where it was too much, was teasing these little gimmicks, these little funny moments before snapping out of it and going, no, I've got to try and win the match. There was one where he went to touch his hair and went, oh, no, make a cover. And it's almost like we're getting a... I'm not saying a serious edge by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, it's Disco Inferno, for crying out loud. <laughs> but it's almost like we're seeing a slight difference in the character on this on this particular night, Danny. Yeah, um, they're definitely... It's, you can almost say like a new evolution of Disco Inferno because now we know he's not all just talk. He can actually wrestle as well. And he can actually... He's using his gimmick to fool his opponents because he nearly got the win here on Dean. So I'm excited to see where they take him next. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, up next, we have a, a standard one-on-one match, which is you know a breath of fresh air considering what we've uh, you know had already on this card. Well, it would be if the match was not Steve Mongo McMichael versus the Desperado, Joe Gomez. Apparently, that's his nickname, the Desperado. I'm not 100 percent sure why, but <laughs> I mean, here on Nitro Nights, we pride ourselves on having a bit of fun at WCW's expense, whilst both loving the company. And we pride ourselves on, you know, taking things seriously when it needs to be, uh, asking the important questions and looking into things, you know, properly and doing our research. So with regards to the important questions that need answers, Danny, where the fuck is Pepe? <laughs> Brilliant question. Um I'm just happy that I mean the 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 um, Mongo McMichael entrance was absolutely brilliant. Probably to me it was the highlight of this entire match. And that's that's nothing against either wrestler, but 
his iconic look was really born here where he came out with the Bears jersey and everything like that. He really, really looked like a star here. See, my favourite part of this match was when the bell rang at the end because it meant I didn't have to watch any more of it. (laughs) Because this is not good, is it? No, no. I mean, I'm not going to skip ahead too much, but the finish of this, um, Gomez's feet are totally under the ropes. Oh, dear. It's just, I mean, first of all, it's punchy, kicky bullshit. Um, But it's messy, punchy, kicky bullshit. There's nothing wrong with brawling if it's done right. I mean, Steve Austin, the guy can wrestle, but let's be honest, as the Stone Cold character during the peak of his career, a lot of it was just mad brawling and it worked. But this is messy, punchy, kicky bullshit, and it's not very good. Eventually, Mongo takes control after a low blow. Um, The highlight for me of the match, actually, to be fair, was on commentary where Bobby Heenan, after this low blow, because he likes the heels, obviously, that's that's the way he should be on commentary. He's saying he's always liked Mongo. He's always been (laughs) a fan of his. And Tony Schiavone... Tony Schiavone basically shoots him and says, no, you haven't. You you basically slagged him off every Monday night since we started in September 95. We've got it on tape. We can play the tape back and listen to you slagging Mongo off. You've never liked Mongo. Bobby Heenan's going, I've always liked him. Tony Schiavone says, we've got it on tape. To which Heenan responds, oh, no, that was Bischoff. <laughs> <laughs> Classic shithousing from Heenan. Absolutely love it, mate. Brilliant stuff, mate. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, Mongo applies a sleeper to which there's a jawbreaker counter by Joe Gomez. Um, a figure four attempt by Joe Gomez as well before Gomez then. I, I suppose this is where we get to where things really sort of come off the rails a little bit. And. I, I Mongo is not particularly good, but this is his third television match. Mm hmm. Okay, this is his third TV match, potentially the third match of his career. I don't know. It's the third match he's had on television. He's in there with a guy who I have seen nothing from that makes me think he is a good wrestler. I've seen nothing from this guy that makes me think checking out his back catalogue of matches would be would be good or entertaining. So I think Mongo has been thrown under the bus a little bit here because he, he needs someone there to help him. He needs someone there to guide him. So Mongo, I think, gets a little bit of a pass here because he's yeah. been he's been thrown into a pay-per-view one-on-one match that goes a good 10 minutes or so. I don't know the exact timings of it, Danny, but it goes a little little while, doesn't it? And he's it's not like he goes in, squashes the guy and leaves, which maybe would have been a better idea, considering we all know Mongo's going to go over here. But he goes in, he's expected to have a match with this guy who, again, I've got no confidence in myself. So Mongo has been thrown under the bus a little bit here. It was inexperienced and the spot he's in. However, both guys contribute to this just being a, a, a messy pile of shite, to be fair. Yeah. Um, this is a match I feel could have been settled on Nitro. Um, this, And as you rightly said, this is Mongo's third television match. This is his first one-on-one match, isn't it? That's right. Yes, he hasn't got the uh, the comfort of a tag partner. He ha- mm. also he hasn't got Arn Anderson or Ric Flair there with him. Yeah, which is and- a huge part of his his first match was a tag match, and yeah, it was him and another inexperienced NFL guy facing 
Flair and Arn. But Flair and Arn are there to carry them through and did a good job at that. His second match is the eight-man tag. He is he's still across the ring from Gomez and the Renegade. So that's a you know a bit wobbly, let's be honest. But he's also across the ring from the Rock and Roll Express, who can help him get through the contest. He's also on the same side of the ring as Benoit, Arn, and Flair. I mean, you can't ask for three better professionals at this point in 1996. And in an eight-man tag, he's got to do the bare minimum. He could tag in and out and just spend a couple of seconds in the ring. So you can hide his shortcomings. Here, yeah. I feel he's really been thrown under the bus, mate. I do as well. And I think the one saving grace of this match is that it just went under seven minutes. Okay. Okay. I still think that's about six and a half minutes too long. <laughs> I mean, why he, couldn't I mean, Mongo... for everything we say about Mongo, I will say he did have an underrated chop. Well, that's, okay, yeah, you're spot on. The chops from Mongo look good. Gomez throws some chops. I, I don't know what he's trying to achieve. He's he's kind of coming off the ropes, and I suppose for people listening, if you remember the character Tatanka, uh, Chris Chavez in the WWF in the early nineties, he would bounce off the ropes and half sort of skip towards his opponent, jump in the air and hit these big chops as part of his comeback, as part of his build-up. It's almost like Gomez is trying to do that, but when he jumps to throw these chops, he doesn't really leave the ground. So they look like shit. (laughs) Definitely, mate. And then um, we get um, Mongo McMichael hitting a tombstone power driver and gets a clean pin, which uh, what do you think about Mongo using the tombstone, Sai? Um, if, if that's going to be Mongo's finish, which I, which I know it is, then fine. And what's good is nobody kicked out of it. Yeah. If this, uh, if he hits a tombstone and somebody throws their shoulder up at two, that's bullshit. Yeah. That, that's what I wrote down. I thought you was going to say that as long as nobody kicks out, especially his first win um, in a one-on-one match. If mm. somebody kicked out of his finisher, a lot of credibility would have been lost. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and I come back to all the time on this show and the other podcasts I do, uh, all available on the SJP World Media Network. Go check every show out on there. But I always come back to realism. Mm. I always come back to, I, I want to lose myself in what I'm watching. I want to, uh, I want to be, I want to suspend my disbelief, I guess, is the is the common term. And I know how wrestling works. You know, I mean, my 13-year-old daughter knows how wrestling works now. But when we watch the show, we want to feel it's real. We want to lose ourselves in the product we have paid for. If somebody gets dropped on the top of their fucking head and then doesn't stay down for three seconds afterwards, that's bullshit. Whether it's a DDT, whether it's a tombstone, a pile driver, whatever. Um, I mean, I'm looking at the Young Bucks here for the amount of DDTs and power drivers and Meltzer drivers they hit and everyone kicks out. It's just silly. But, I mean, I got my air off with it a little bit when Dean Malenko hit that fantastic brainbuster in the match earlier on on the card. And yeah. Disco kicked out of that. Yeah. Like, You're dropping a guy on his fucking non... On his fonts. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Definitely. Uh, it's just all about the realism. But very, very good finish for this match. Yeah, yeah, it worked, it worked. And Mongo, I mean, the jacket is cool. I'm not a big fan of the ring gear, though, to be honest. Those funny length tights. Yeah, they're very much, you see a lot of wrestlers using them today, like sort of like sports shorts. Um, 
I I would I'll just guess this, but I know a lot of wrestlers have um in can um see I'm struggling with the word. They uh, are very self conscious about their thighs. So maybe it could have been uh something to do with that. Yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. Uh this match is followed by I suppose another mean Gene segment. He is with Ric Flair and woman is again flirting with Gene whilst Liz stands there. I well, just does what Liz does, I suppose. She just kind of stands there. And um Gene is talking of Mongo's got the job done in his match. Uh, Flair's gonna get the job done in his match and win the US title while beating Conan. And there's going to be a big party. And then Arn and Benoit are going to get the job done in their match against the Giant and Sullivan, which means that a member of the Horsemen will get a world title match the following night on Nitro. Flair's already talking like it's going to be him regardless. I don't know if this has been agreed with the Horsemen or he's just making assumptions. But it's a typical Ric Flair promo with the robe and the noise and the shouting. And I've got the beautiful girls. We're going to party all night long and all that sort of stuff. We've seen it a million and one times, but I never get tired of this. Absolutely not, mate. Well said. And I just wrote down, um, this is my favourite Ric Flair robe. Um, I'm interested, do you have a favourite Ric Flair robe, Si? Oh, why? Um, I have a couple. I love the black robe with the white feathers that he wore in the WWF in 92. Because I love the 92 Rumble. I love the purple robe that he wore. A few times as well. I love the robe he wore in the match against Michaels at WrestleMania. Yeah, the blue. I've got yes, that's right, and it's a bit of a bigger, sort of more flamboyant effort. Uh, that one I've got a special affiliation for because it's one of my favourite matches. And my wife actually bought me a. I don't know what the range is. It's, it's a range of the WWE action figures, um, and they had a specific range that was referred to as like I don't know if it was called historic moments or or whatever. But it's like, you know, they're dressed or, or they're done in a way so their ring gear is a copy of that particular wrestler in historic moments in their career. And the WrestleMania entrance with the robe and so on from the Shawn Michaels match is the Ric Flair figurine that my wife bought me. And that stands very tall and proud above the other figures on, on my desk that I use for more editing and so on. So I'm very fond of that one as well. But yeah. I think if you go way back to the early Starcades as well, when his robes were a little bit, I suppose, less flamboyant, they would have a few less gemstones on. I like the, I like the sort of minimalist look to those, but I just love Ric Flair in general. The whole character, everything about it, everything about it is just superb, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. And this is the first time we've seen him bust out this pink robe. Uh, for a while, he's just been using the green one uh, on these nitros, so it was a nice change. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, also, interestingly enough, I mean, we're going to come to this match now, Flair versus Conan. Spoiler alert, everybody. Ric Flair wins the US title here. But the reason I'm bringing that up so early in this uh, talk back through this this particular match, there's this theory that Ric Flair always wears his red gear if he's going to lose a big match. The red trunks, red knee pads, red boots. And yes, there are you know, moments in his career where he lost big matches wearing that red gear. WrestleMania eight is one that's instantly springs to mind here. He's wearing the red gear and he wins the U S title. So I hope that kind of nullifies maybe some of the thoughts with regards to that, to that little myth or, or legend there, Danny. Yeah, definitely. Cause now you say that, um, I'm just picturing WrestleMania 20 
where uh, Evolution faced Rock and Sock Connection. He was wearing red there too, and he won. Ah, there you go. It's all bullshit then. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> speaking of ring attire and the way people are dressed, um, I'm going to probably show my age a little bit here, I guess. Danny, do you know who Adamant is? No. No? Okay, I'll let you Google it later on. Yeah. Um, but Conan comes out dressed as some kind of weird pirate, or maybe like he's a big fan of Adamant from the early 80s, uh, the Prince Charming video and all that sort of stuff. It looks a bit ridiculous. But Conan tends to, in most of his entrance attires, I guess. Uh, the match begins with various exchanges. We exchange a couple of headlocks. The guys exchange a few slaps and a few wrist locks early on. Before Conan kind of takes control, uh, he uses a surfboard at one point. Um, <laughs> a few press slams as well, which was quite spectacular. But then, then we start hearing women on the outside screaming and yelling. And... I think Woman is fantastic. We're seeing a lot of her here in Night 6. I think she's brilliant in her role. But the screaming in this match, it got to me a bit, Danny. Yeah. Um, I will have to give her a shout-out because uh, only recently doing uh, research for this, I found out she was also part of uh, a few wrestlers on this card who were wrestling in Mexico the night before. Okay. Uh, like Psychosis, Conan, Rey Mysterio, and I think a few others. But I had no idea she was uh, part of that group until I was researching. So I was like, oh, wow. So she barely made it to this pay-per-view. Um, yeah, the screaming was a bit much for me too. But um, she was definitely there. Uh, I was actually glad she was there to um, – this is a big moment in Ric Flair's career, to be honest, because even though he's winning the mid-card championship, because when I was watching this, I was thinking, oh, Ric Flair's not going to win this. But when he actually won it, I was like, wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I, see, I've seen this show so many times. Mm. But this is – I don't know if I've got some kind of really weird <sighs> – mental block maybe or something but every time i watch this pay-per-view back which again like i said is, is, is numerous occasions i'm surprised flair wins the match i know it's going to happen so i don't know why it surprises me so much <laughs> i was surprised I think, this time i think because maybe we've been watching the televisions up towards it and he's just been in the main events every week and or more or less every week except that one week he was left off of television um uh yeah it's just like like you don't want to say the u.s towels beneath him but it kind of is mm. yeah potentially potentially um i suppose though when you look at the bigger picture as in the whole the whole roster and where we're heading the the people booking the show, the people in charge, know that Hogan's coming back. We haven't seen Hogan for, for, for an extended period, have we? We he, they know Hogan's coming back. There's no way Hogan is not going to be involved in the world title picture. The Giant is the world champion. He's just took it off Flair. So, you know, Flair's not going to be entered back into another program with the Giant because we've seen that in the last few months already. I suppose putting the US title on Flair... I don't want to say gives him something to do because it sounds a bit dismissive of the US Championship, but that's not what I mean. It's, I suppose, it, I suppose it's good for the US title because Flair can elevate it. Yeah. And at the same time, it's good for Flair because he's carrying a quite historic championship. You know, he can't be in the world title picture at this moment, 
So this is the next best thing, maybe? Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, years after this, he would go on to hold the WWE Intercontinental Championship. And I feel it was the same type of thing. It was like, okay, we have to get the IC belt um, elevated a bit more. So let's stick it on Ric Flair. And Mm. yeah, sort of the same thing here. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I mean, we we spoke about what goes on in the match a little bit moments ago. But after what we've already um, explained, we then start getting the interference that Conan said he wasn't worried about earlier on in in the pay-per-view when he was interviewed by Mean Gene. We have Ric Flair using the, the ladies who accompany him to the ring very, very well, in my opinion. A uh, woman at one point shakes the ropes to send Conan falling off them. Um, Flair then goes to Conan's eyes. And as the ref tells him off, woman comes in and low blows Conan. Uh, there's another moment where I think the timing of this one was a bit off because Liz gets on the apron. And the referee is distracted by this. But it seems to take an age for woman to interfere on the other side of the ring. That one didn't seem quite right, did it? Yeah, I, I think I agree with you with that time and issues, definitely. Mm. Um, but that, I mean, that, that effectively takes us to the finish. Like I said, both ladies are on the apron, either side of the ring. The ref is with Liz for what seems like an age before woman hits Conan with her shoe. It is not a great shot, to be fair. It looks quite weak. Um, but then Flair pins Conan with his feet on the ropes to win the US title. Now, I thought the match was fine. It wasn't the best Ric Flair match in the world, or probably never be the best Conan match in the world. I think it it was fine. It Conan came away still looking strong because there was so much interference to, that cost him the championship. Uh, Flair comes away with the title, having cheated to win, which is obviously the you know what he should be doing as the heel, as 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 the Horseman member. The finish because of the timing issues, it just looked a bit scrappy to me, Danny. What did you think of the match? The decision to change the title here. Uh, and and the finish itself. I thought that the decision to change the championship is a good thing because we are we Conan has had some good matches. We can't take that away from him. But the US Championship does not feel important to me at the moment. So I'm thinking that maybe with Ric Flair holding it now. He could also he could have some. It's it's sort of like when uh, John Cena had the US Championship in WWE, where he was having matches, he was elevating stars. I'm hoping we get that from Ric Flair. Um, in terms of the match, I thought it was pretty standard, but it was was nothing to write home about. Yeah, I, I think putting the title on Flair is a good decision. Mm. I've enjoyed the idea of Conan being US champion. They've obviously got high hopes for this guy. Uh, he's got a great look, even if some of his ring attire is ridiculous. He he doesn't come across the most confident in interviews, but the guy can at least talk. Uh, I mean, later in his career, we know that changes. But here, as this kind of white meat baby face role, it doesn't come across with the same level of charisma that we see later on. And I suppose the exposure in Mexico, because he's still working for the AAA promotion. He's their champion as well, is is good for is good for WCW as well. But I'm not heartbroken that the title was switched here. I don't think his reign his reign was that memorable, I suppose, is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, especially for the length of time he's had it. Mm. 
We go back to Mean Gene again, and he is outside the Outsiders dressing room. Outside the Outsiders dressing room. Try saying that five times fast. And um, <laughs> he's eavesdropping there. And he's, he tells Tony Schiavone that he recognises the third man's voice. It's incredibly muffled, so he can't hear it properly. So he can't say who it is. But to quote Mean Gene, something in his subconscious is getting you know, you know lit up, I guess. Uh, he then tells Mean Gene to offer the police money to say who's gone in that room, which I thought was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, you know what? It's like I loved this. Um, just I just wish I didn't know who the third man was because that would have been oh, you would have your mind would have been blown. You would have been Mean Gene's worked with everyone in wrestling. That could be anyone. That could be Hulk Hogan or it could be. Um, someone from the AWA it could be anyone and that's mm. what I loved about this is like he didn't let any hints be known at all it is brilliant storytelling absolutely brilliant storytelling uh, I'll tell you what you know what follows I think is great storytelling as well to be fair we have the the tag match between the two members of the Horsemen R. Anderson and Chris Benoit taking on two members of the Dungeon of Doom yes oh my god that is still a bloody thing <laughs> and it's again uh, the Giant and Kevin Sullivan uh, and the, you know the stipulation is if the Horsemen team win there then a member of the Horsemen gets a world title match against the Giant the following night on Nitro and the storytelling here I think is very clever because Arn and Benoit and the rest of the Horsemen have, have been hinting at Sullivan being the weak link which you can understand because the giant is the world champion and he's li- literally a fucking giant. So, you know, it's uh, <laughs> going to be the weakling. Uh, the promos earlier on hinted at that as well. But the match here, I think, is structured that way. Also, the horsemen are jumped in the entranceway before Mongo comes out with a briefcase full of money, hits people with it. The giant chases Mongo to the back which leaves Kevin Sullivan, the supposed weak link, in a two-on-one situation with the horseman beating upon him. When the giant comes back relatively quickly, he's on the outside of the ring because Sullivan is in the ring. He's the legal man. So they've got what they want. They've got Sullivan in the ring and the giant on the outside. And the rest of this match, effectively, is Arn and Benoit beating on Sullivan and desperately trying to stop him making that tag to this seven-foot-plus world champion on the apron. I think it made the giant look strong. I think it made the horseman look very clever. I think the whole way this match was structured and the story they were trying to tell was really well done, Danny. It really was, mate. And you just summed it up perfectly. Really good storytelling. It was just, how can we get um, the giant even more, like, just almost like feared you could say because like oh no we know when Sullivan tags him it's over for us so they had to use everything including Mongo with the briefcase and everything like that but yeah really enjoyable match um I was actually shocked how um quick this match went it just it didn't even last eight minutes yeah I think that was a obviously they've got a certain amount of pay-per-view time yeah you know and the last thing you want to do is I suppose overrun because the pay-per-view companies will just pull the plug and the end of the uh, end of the show won't get shown and it causes all sorts of financial problems and legal problems and so on as we will find out in a couple of years time Danny yeah. um, <laughs> I'm thinking Halloween Havoc uh, we, <laughs> but they've got the main event they want to get to and that is the the big 
part of this match. And obviously the main event will naturally have Michael Buffer making the announcements, so that adds a lot of time as well. Yeah. We're going to have effectively Mean Gene talking to people before the main event, Mean Gene talking to people after the main event. And this is uh, the, the biggest thing in wrestling, I would say, for, for God knows how long. So how horrific would it have been if they'd run out of time? Yeah, now when you say it like that, I'm shocked that this match went as long as it did. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, The finish eventually comes when, and this is a shame as well, because I really enjoyed this match, but there's a terrible slingshot here. The, The horseman team go for a spike pile driver, which was... The Brainbusters finisher, the ho- the former Four Horsemen tag team of Arn Anderson and Teddy Blanchard. Arn would pile drive someone with Teddy coming off the ropes and, and pushing down for extra force or spike to the pile driver, I guess. Benoit is on the top rope. He is taking the, the Teddy Blanchard role in this moment. Kevin Sullivan then slingshots Arn Anderson towards Benoit to knock him down to enable Sullivan to make the tag to the giant. But it looks like shit. The slingshot is mis- slingshot is mistimed. Arn has no option but to throw himself towards Benoit because the slingshot didn't work properly and didn't look convincing, which made it look even worse. But what option has he got? He's got to knock Benoit down. This is the this is the moment in the match that you know they've been building towards. The giant gets tagged in, the crowd has a huge pop and so on. It kind of really it's a real shame for me that this moment didn't go as well as it potentially could. Yeah, I, I feel that, mate. And I just, after that, the match just turns to chaos and we get, like, all four competitors, or, yeah, just absolutely destroying each other all up the entranceway. Chris Benoit takes an insane dive off of the commentary area on Sullivan, and I was just like, man, this man just did not care about his own health, did he? Mm, yes, it's interesting. Uh, Benoit and Sullivan... Uh, end up fighting away from the ring, don't they? Like you said, up towards the yeah. commentary desk and all that sort of stuff. And as this goes on, the Giant wins the match of a chokeslam, which is fair enough. He's the world champion. He should be picking up the victory in a tag match like this, I guess. Benoit and Sullivan then carry on, though, and fight back to the ring. But it's very much a case of Sullivan is getting his ass handed to him. Benoit is kicking the shit out of this guy. <laughs> Before a woman, who is associated with the horseman, runs out incredibly concerned screaming at Chris to stop because you're going to seriously hurt him. That was interesting because this is the first time we've seen any sign of humanity or mercy from the woman character. She has always come across, I mean, don't get me wrong, by comparison next to Liz, Liz just stands there. And you know, to me, Miss Elizabeth is always the lady in the WWF associated with Macho Man who everyone loved. So her as a heel is weird to me. But even without that comparison, Woman always comes across as very evil. But here she's showing, you know, mercy, I guess, to Kevin Sullivan. What did you think of this, This, you know, the way this went down, Danny? This was very um, almost out of left field to me because, as you said, this humanity, first time we've seen it from woman here, it was like, wow, like, where, where did this come out of? I mean, I've only read about this feud. I completely did not know that... Um, 
uh, woman was involved in it on screen. I thought she was just off screen involved in this the feud between these two that um, turned it that involved <laughs> a divorce. But now, in a serious tone, it was like, wow, oh, that just went out of nowhere. So I'm actually really interested to see where that goes. Yes, yes, and it does, you know, rumble on for a few more weeks. At the end of this, though, I mean, the giant does come back and make the save. And then he carries Kevin Sullivan. I mean, first of all, he puts Kevin Sullivan over his shoulder, steps over the top rope and walks down the ring steps with Sullivan over his shoulder. That was pretty impressive. I loved it. It just it looked like something out of a film where he's just yeah. like, OK, I'm, I'll take you home mate, from the pub. <laughs> yeah, he just carries Kevin Sullivan back like a little baby. Um <laughs> That then brings us, Danny, to what I guess everyone is really here for. The hostile takeover match. The main event of the evening. Sting, Lex Luger, and the Macho Man Randy Savage, representing WCW. And they are taking on Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, who get named on this pay-per-view, by the way, which I think is the first time they are referred to by name. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And their mystery third guy. We get a video recap again of the build-up to this with Hall and Nash arriving and all the stuff that went on, powerbombing uh, Eric Bischoff at the Great American Bash and turning up with the tickets and the baseball bats and all that great stuff. Again, to this very generic um, stock music played in the background. It, It feels huge. Even now, after all these years and all these watchbacks, when I watch this and I watch the video recap and Michael Buffer making the announcements on the entrance and then the guys making their entrances, it feels huge, even to this day. I mean, this yeah. is, um, you know, we're, we're talking about this match in its entirety, as opposed to just the finish. You've now been watching the weekly television of WCW uh, for, well, we've been running over a year now, so it's been a while. But this has been, you know, building for several weeks. We all know that the NWO is a big deal for WCW. So even though this angle has been building for several weeks for you and I, Danny, doing our watchback, this has been building for over a year on a personal level. How did you feel at this moment watching this with all the context of the weekly TV, Michael Buffer announcing people to the ring before the bell rings? What were you what were you thinking? What were you feeling? This felt just big time. It was like, okay, this is happening. So much so that I actually turned it off of my um, laptop at two hours and ten minutes, came up to my flat and turned it onto the TV because I was like, you know what, I want to watch this on loud, on a big screen, uh, and I actually want to watch it without taking notes first and then re-watch it with taking notes. This felt like a giant thing happening um i didn't know that bobby heenan did you hear bobby heenan's comment just at the beginning go on i i I obviously did but which one are you referring to so bobby heenan right at the beginning compared uh this storyline to the oj simpson case (laughs) okay (laughs) the trial of oj simpson yes where a woman was murdered um yeah, is is compared to a wrestling storyline, but I've I've got a little kick out of that. But no, but in seriousness, um, this felt giant. Yeah, this this was just like wow. Actually, want to see this in full because it's one of the most 
replayed moments in all of wrestling's on all of the WCW DVDs and all that. But yeah, I I definitely had to watch this one twice. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, also, I mean, the Outsiders make their entrance first. There's only two of them. So straight away you're thinking, oh, hello, what's going on here? And their entrance music is that generic, you know, Turner stock music track that is effectively the theme tune to the pay-per-view. The recaps that we've had twice on the show, the beginning of the pay-per-view, and when the when the credits roll at the end, which is unique to WCW, when the credits roll at the end, it's all to the music the outsiders actually use to come to the ring. It sounds like um, almost like a maybe an action movie where somebody's getting chased on a beach, uh, almost like you'd have that music playing in the background. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like the detectives are chasing the a culprit down on the beach. It's like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe that'll play us out this week. Maybe that'll play us yeah. out this week. Um, Sting's music then plays by mistake. <laughs> which is great <laughs> mean gene if you watch i mean this is we've got the camera from the back of the arena at this point showing the the big crowd and the outsiders in the ring if you look at if you look at mean gene if you can focus on him down the entrance way he's a little dot in the in the aisle he's walking to the ring to speak to the outsiders and basically ask where is the third guy what's going on but the sign guy gets a little bit overexcited and plays sting's entrance music so it's almost like mean gene is coming down to sting's music which is quite cool before <laughs> you know mean gene before Mean Gene so, actually, sorry, hang on. He actually stops halfway down the entranceway, turns right, and looks back, and waves his arms. <laughs> no, I actually meant to ask you about that. Could that have been done on purpose to try and swerve the fans to think Sting was the third man? Oh, do you know what? I never thought of that. I might be thinking too much into it, but I, I just had the feeling like, okay, oh, Sting's music's playing straight after the Outsiders. Maybe to try and get those um, sort of cynical fans, it would be like, if like say like a Dave Meltzer was watching this, like, oh, they played Sting's music. That means he's going to turn at the end of the, the pay-per-view. That's how I felt. But I could be looking into it way too deeply. I would say, I, I think it's really interesting that you've drawn that. Yeah, you've come up with that idea because that's never entered my mind. And I think that would be a really clever little ploy on WCW's part. Mm. A really clever little twist. But because it's WCW and we know how this company makes these errors, I think it was just a screw up. Yeah. How many, how many, how many nitros have we seen where the wrong guy's music's played? <laughs> yeah, and I also think that if Sting was going to be teased as the third guy at this moment and it was intentional, then the commentary team would buy into that mm. and they would react to Sting's music. Whereas they're all saying, even when Sting's music is playing, they're saying, where is the third man? Who is the third man? Sting's music hits at that moment. They would at least sell it, I guess, of no, surely not, or something along those lines, if it was intentional. Yeah. I think it was just typical WCW and they screwed something up. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but very interesting idea. Really, you know, you should be a booker, Donny. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Gene does speak to the outsiders and asks, where is the third guy? They respond that he's here. He's in the building. But we've got enough between the two of us to deal with this for now. 
So that gets greeted with a chorus of booze. The commentators are talking about how disgusting this is. We need to know who it is and all that sort of stuff. Before Tony Schiavone realizes, oh, hang on. That means it's, you know, our three guys versus their two. Brilliant. Get our guys down. Let's kick their asses. And I'm thinking, yeah, you're right. You've got an advantage. Shut up about your moaning and get on with it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they really do get hyped over that. There's like, okay, now we can just wipe them out. Mm, exactly. Uh, the whole of Team WCW come out to Sting's music to a great reaction from the crowd. And they all look superb here. They're all painted up still. They've all got the, the war paint on, the Sting's face paint. Luger looks in fantastic shape, as he always does in this era. Uh, and it's just, it, again, it just feels so important at this moment. It feels like a real, you know, I, I suppose the cheesy phrase is that, you know, the electricity in the air. But it feels that way, even in, even now in, in, in January of 2023, as we record this look back. I've seen this, God knows how many times, I've, I, I know how this ends. Everyone knows what happens. At this moment, it still feels so exciting to me. Yeah. The match begins with Scott Hall and Lex Luger. And they're brawling for a little while before uh, Luger ends up in the wrong corner. Nash holds on to Luger. From like effectively interfering from from the apron from the outside, he's not the legal man. Sting hits a stinger splash, with Luger then getting crushed in that and banging his head or whatever happened. I'm not 100 percent sure because he drops to the apron uh, to the apron and then to the floor, and it's basically like Lex Luger's dead. <laughs> he sells it brilliantly. I have to say that. I mean, he's he's done. He's he's not moving, and Luger gets stretched out. So that then means we have 2v2 for a while, which I think this was very clever because it's twofold for me. On one aspect, Luger getting took to the back so early then opens the question of, oh, is Luger maybe the third man? Is he going to come back? You know, that's that, that could have entered some people's minds. But hmm. also, we know we're not going to unveil the third man. I, I, I say we, I mean the people booking the show and so on the third man is not going to be unveiled until the very end they're going to milk this for all they can and rightfully so yeah and in the just... meantime before that happens you can't have three baby faces versus the two heel outsiders because it makes the outsiders the underdogs because it's three versus two so you don't want that to come across to the fans in that way and secondly if the three wcw guys don't beat two outsiders they look weak so I think Luger being eliminated early on is quite a clever ploy that some people kind of overlook sometimes. Yeah, uh, that's something I didn't really think about because I do remember years ago in Power Slam magazine, uh, somebody wrote an article saying um, the heels should never be outnumbered in a wrestling match. Mm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and it is it is true to me. I mean, there are ways of doing it, of course, and you can get comedy moments from it or the yeah. uh, the heels getting their comeuppance after a feud because they get their asses handed to them, whatever. But in general, you don't want your baby faces to be the favourites a great deal of the time. You, you, you don't want the heels to almost get any sympathy from the crowd because mm. that then changes the dynamic of the heel baby faces you're looking at. So and being on the wrong end numerically in any in a situation, any fight. The team with the lesser numbers does tend to get that kind of sympathetic vote sometimes, not uh, not as a, as a constant rule. It's just sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Uh <sighs> 
Sting comes in here after Luger stretched it out, and he is going crazy. He's hammering on Scott Hall. He's throwing punches at Nash. There's takedowns, and he, you know, absolutely, you know, just the crowd are loving this as well. Wild for Wild Sting. Uh, Macho Man tags in, and um, I mean the faces are here. They're in control early, aren't they? You know, yeah. At, at this portion of the match, Danny. Yeah, they are. They're just going wild, as you were saying. Um, very believable brawling because they're like, okay, we just want to squash you out before we even get a chance to see who your third man is. So they're trying mm. to end this early. Yeah. Um, Nash tags in and then kind of takes over, which he should do because he's a monster of a man against two smaller guys who have been in the in the match already. Uh, and the outsiders then are kind of in control for a while. Uh Tony Schiavone makes the suggestion of, well, there was a lottery held, the top six guys in WCW, and we drew three names to decide who's going to represent us. If Luger's down and out, why don't we bring somebody else out? And both the other commentators side with him and say, that's a great idea. Why couldn't we do that? Get another guy down to represent WCW. That would make sense. And again, I think it's quite a clever little touch because that means when we see the third man, we don't know if he's coming down to help team wcw because they're down to two men or if he is the third man for the outsiders it's quite a clever little touch that again i think sometimes gets a little overlooked when you watch it back in its entirety that comment by shivani throws a little bit of uh i suppose doubt into hogan's motivation when he does arrive yeah it totally does mm. we get the the, the brilliant fall away slam that scott hall has used in his entire career on sting uh, followed by an ab- abdominal stretch with the the standard heels pulling on the other guy's arm and, and so on. And at this point, after the initial excitement, after the initial hype, after the initial, I suppose, speed of the babyface's offense and the heels then taking over, we have Sting desperately trying to make the tag to Macho Man, Macho Man on the apron trying to get the tag and so on. The sparkle has kind of gone a little bit for me at this point. At this stage, it just kind of feels like an ordinary tag match now. Yeah, I feel like the crowd was the same way. Um, the crowd kind of dipped during this part portion of the match. Yeah, and I suppose it's, I suppose it, it kind of has to happen because it's your main event. You can't start the match, have all that chaos at the beginning, have Luger going out, have a quick sort of ninety seconds. And then have Hogan arrive because mm. that would that would ruin the moment that we're coming to shortly. And ultimately, it is a match with rules. This isn't no DQ. This isn't a mad brawl. This isn't just a fight. This is a tag team contest. So the rules have to be applied and stuck to. So we end up with two guys either side of the ring in a tag match, which is what it is. So when I say it feels that way, it's doing its job because that is what this contest is. But at the same time, with how big it felt when the bell rang and the excitement and the build-up, it almost feels a bit flat at this stage, which I don't think is any fault of the performers. I just think the scenario they're in, when the match gets into it, you know, in, in a few minutes in, and you're, you're getting into the into the weeds a little bit with regards to the, the, the actual meat of the match, I guess. Yeah. They can't do much else with it, I think, Danny. No, I think it flowed very well. Um, as you were saying, it just like it was about the storytelling, but in comparison, it's like okay, this is the um, this is how it's gonna go. Um, a, B, and C, 
and then we get to the end. Mm. We do. We do get to the end. Uh, eventually, Sting fights back a bit, gets the hot tag to Randy Savage. Savage comes in, as he should, as the babyface getting the hot tag, and cleans house. He's smashing both the outsiders, left, right, and center, before the referee is distracted. Nash hits a huge low blow on Randy Savage. Everybody is dying. And here comes Hulk Hogan. What are you thinking, Danny? Obviously, you know what happens. But again, with the context of watching the weekly television, as you're sat there watching this, what goes through your mind when the camera... Because effectively, we have the match, we have the low blow, and then the camera cuts to the famous scene of Hogan striding down the, the aisleway. That scene of Hogan striding down the aisleway and what happens has been replayed a million and one times. Yeah. But you've seen the weekly television. You have total context for everything and you've seen the rest of this match up to this moment when we see the historic you know striding yellow and red one of down the aisleway what are your thoughts here seeing this moment again for god knows how many i don't know the hundredth time but with the rest of the context involved as well just sheer electricity it's like oh yeah so hulk hogan came down but also i felt like why would he come down um, you could say, oh, yeah, he came down to help out WCW because they were on the um, losing end after that low blow. But it's like, just the big question was like, why would he come down? But it, definitely you could feel the excitement. I, I think the commentary team have done really well with this. I mean, I was very critical of Shivani and Heenan earlier on in the card of how they were Mike Tanay, and I think rightfully so. I think they were unjustly um, mean is too strong a word, but you, you know what I'm getting at. They were mm. they were a bit they were a bit unfair to to Mike Tanay. But in this contest, I think they've built this up really well. The 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 confusion of you know Luger's gone. Who's the third man? And then Tony Shivani saying, "Let's get another guy out here." Let's get somebody else to represent WCW. And then the fact that Hogan comes down after the Outsiders have openly cheated with a massive low blow. And Savage is out for the count on the floor. It looks like he could be pinned at any moment. He's just been punched in the bollocks for crying out loud. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, if I get hit in the bollocks by a guy who's seven foot plus with both hands and, you know, I'm going to stay down for three seconds. I'll tell you that. Um, it could feel like, and the crowd do react. I mean, some of them react positively. We still get some of the Hogan boos, but we're getting a lot of boos for the low blow. And then here's Hogan. Here's the, you know, American-made hero. You know, here's the the red, white, and blue Hulkamania. You know, drink your milk, say your prayers, take your vitamins. The guy who has been the face. And I mean that literally as in the face and the baby face of professional wrestling for over a decade. Striding to the ring as the good guy team look like they're going to be done by the opposition cheating. Hogan is here to right all the wrongs in the world. That's the feeling I got from it. Yeah. But we all know that doesn't happen. Bobby Heenan yells the line, yes, but whose side is he on? Which a lot of people have criticised Bobby Heenan for. Uh, and Tony Schiavone shoots him down straight away, going, oh, will you stop it? Don't be so ridiculous, whilst Dusty Rhodes is yelling, Hulkamania, 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 and all this sort of stuff. And I don't mind that. I mean, a lot of people have criticised Heenan for almost giving away the surprise before it happened. 
But I think if you're watching live at the time, Bobby Heenan has spent his entire career. I mean, Bobby Heenan was the guy who turned Andre the Giant against Hogan in 1987. Almost 10 years, you know, from this, this event. Bobby Heenan has battled Hulk Hogan throughout the whole time in the WWF with all sorts of wrestlers, the Heenan family and so on. He's always hated Hogan. All of his promos, interviews, and any time he's been on commentary, he's been calling Hogan a coward, a liar. You can't trust this guy throughout his whole career. So him saying, whose side is he on here? I don't think is a problem because I think the character, Bobby the Brain Heenan, would ask that question. Bang on, mate. Bang on. That is perfectly said. I have no idea why Heenan gets uh, so much flack um for that finish i mean i can see where they're coming from but the way you've said it i mean he spent literally almost a decade maybe even more than that if you go back to awa but he spent so many years just questioning hulk hogan's character like you said calling him a liar all this Mm. why i mean what it wouldn't make sense if he said Hulk Hogan's here oh my god we and and just started like praising him it just would not make sense no it, no, it doesn't. And it'd be very easy, I think, for Heenan to have said that. Mm. I mean, it'd be very easy for Heenan to get carried away in that moment and sell the fact that Hogan is supposed to be the babyface. Almost get caught up with the excitement of his of his commentary partners, Shivani and, and Rhodes. So the fact that Heenan does come out with this, I think it's I think it's fine. I think it's I think it's good. Yeah. But we've all seen this now a million and one times, haven't we? Hogan gets in the ring. Um, he he sort of shoves the referee out the way. There's a bit of a pause. The outsiders look at him in shock, like, oh my God, Hogan's here to help WCW and we're in trouble now. And then he turns and he hits that leg drop. And he stands up and he gives two big thumbs up to the outsiders. And then he throws the referee out the ring, hits another leg drop. And then Scott Hall counts to three. And all the rubbish then starts coming in the ring. Uh, Tony Schiavone states, we will not acknowledge that three count. It's like, well, it doesn't really seem like it's your decision, Tony. I'm sorry. <laughs> but he then comes out with a brilliant line as well, Tony Schiavone. Uh, as Mean Gene is coming down to the ring to, to, you know, to, to get in the ring to speak to the outsiders and Hogan, which I think is a really clever touch because if this was a WWF pay-per-view, Hogan would have hit the leg drop, posed, show would go off air. And everyone would be like, oh, we've got to watch Nitro tomorrow night night to find out what happens. Yeah. You know, or, which, which again, is, is a clever ploy. It's good marketing, getting people to tune into the TV. But I like the way WCW do this because Gene gets in the ring to interview them. And as this is happening, Tony Schiavone comes out with a fantastic line of, uh, maybe this was premeditated all the way back from 1994. So it throws into doubt everything Hogan has done since he jumped ship from the WWF. Yeah. Has this been the plan all along? Such a almost a throwaway line, but mm. I think it was so clever, Danny. Yeah, it really was, mate. And it's like he he just questioned every. It was like he was never our hero. He was doing this for the money, and then when he gets on the microphone, he all but confirms it. Mm. Well, this is it. The promo is is fantastic. I'm not going to go word for word or anything like that, but the promo is awesome. The first words out of Hogan's mouth is tell these people to shut up. Brilliant. Just straight away. There's no grey areas and all that. Um, he mentions that he, there's a great big organisation up north where these two guys have come from. 
and who knows more about being there than me so again it makes you think oh is this going back all the way to 94 who knows yeah Uh, this is the new world order of wrestling brother he states that he's bored in wcw after all the stuff turner and uh, bishop has done for him and he says for two years i did everything for the charities i did everything for the kids and the reception i got when i came out here tonight you fans can stick it brother and it's that that line because again this is the big issue that hogan had and why he didn't want to turn heel previously which we will cover in depth in our nwo special when we record that very soon danny he was scared about turning heel or didn't want to turn heel because of the charity work because of the stuff he does for children and all that to use that line he's done everything for charities and everything for the kids and you lot can now stick it oh it just really turns the knife it just really it's so well done i think this is one of hogan's best promos of his career yeah no doubt mate no doubt tony Schiavone at the end of the show is is fantastic again he sounds very solemn very disappointed almost heartbroken in a way he says about seeing the end of Hulkamania. He says, you know, for Dusty Rhodes, for Bobby Heenan, I'm Tony Schiavone. I don't even know what to say. And there's a pause. And he just says, Hulk Hogan, you can go straight to hell. And that's the end of the show. And it's like, just, I think this is fantastic. So, so well done. And Tony Schiavone, Dusty Rhodes, Bobby Heenan on commentary, uh, the way the the babyface team said it, the way the heels conduct themselves, the interview, Mean Gene, and the way he holds the microphone, and uh, the, the the iconic image of all that rubbish and trash being thrown in the ring. Yeah. Absolutely fantastic. And the NWO have begun, and we're off to the races, Danny. Yeah, we certainly are, mate. And also, the fact that the WWE Network has scrubbed off the... Um the incident where the fan uh, tried to jump the ring to try and attack the ah, yes um, yes very true yeah and that was really disappointing to see because i was like oh i was actually looking forward to seeing that guy get punched in the head again <laughs> <laughs> oh there we go so then that is the end of bash at the beach 1996 the following episode of nitro is fascinating we are going to be watching that for the show Obviously, next week, that's how Nitro Night works. I Nitro Nights podcast works. Sorry, put my teeth in. Uh, before we depart, though, Danny, do you want to let everyone know what you thought of this episode with your hit, miss, or middling? But first of all, your positives and your negatives, your woos and your old brothers. Woo! Brother, 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 brothers, brother. Woo! Brother. Yeah. So I would have to say the biggest woo of this was ha- it would have to be the Hulk Hogan heel turn. Yes. It was just massive. Uh, changed wrestling forever. Um, what was your woo, mate? Exactly the same. The Hogan turn. The Hogan turn. I nearly went for the opener because it was such a good wrestling match, but you can't ignore the the Hogan turn. This is a monumental night and a monumental moment in professional wrestling. Absolutely, mate. And for the old brother, it would definitely have to be the Joe Gomez Mongo McMichael match as it's as a standalone. It almost was the Silver Dollars on a uh, pole match, but yeah, it just yeah, I would say that one. How about you, mate? Exactly the same again, my friend. The, Mon- <laughs> the Mongo match. I, I almost went for the the ropey commentary in the opener, 
But yeah, the Mongo Gomez match is is my over as well. Let's see if we can make it a hat trick of us picking the same thing. Hit miss or middling, brother? Big hit, massive hit. Um, absolutely fantastic night of wrestling. Um, so glad I watched the main event twice because you have to watch that without taking notes on it. It's like wow. So yeah, yeah, massive hit. How about you, mate? It's a hat trick of us agreeing, my friend. Hit for me as well. Hit for me as well. Now, before we quickly run through our socials and depart, I just want to let everyone know we have been promising for numerous weeks now a look at the NWO as a bonus episode. Danny and I will be recording that very, very soon. Uh, Well, it probably will be recorded by the time you hear this, to be honest. Now, the reason we've not delved into too many details behind the scenes with regards to the Hogan conversations about turning heel with Bischoff and the timeline of him agreeing what was going to happen if he didn't turn heel and so on. Like many other podcasts might when they cover this particular pay-per-view is that Danny and I are going to cover that in our NWO special. We're going to look at, we're going to go way back to the signing of Scott Hall, run from there, talk about all the, the contracts, the timing of things, the, the plans they had, things that worked, things that didn't and all this sort of stuff running right from, the initial idea, the beginning of the Outsiders invasion, right up to this particular night. And then that will be part one of our, you know, behind the scenes, I suppose, look and sort of the story of the NWO. I suppose the episode one might be like the creation of the NWO potentially. As the years progress, as the months progress, the weeks progress, the television progresses, we will revisit the NWO story and have further parts to what's going on with regards to the NWO, the business side of things, the contracts, the ratings, and all that great stuff. But yes, coming very soon will be part one, which is the the initial idea right the way through, dealing with as much as we can, as many details as we can, um, why it was so important, why it worked, all that great stuff, right up to this particular night. And that's where we will cut off that first part, Danny, isn't it? Absolutely, mate. I'm really looking forward. It's almost like a, a side project for us, isn't it? In a way, mate. In a way. <laughs> so, before we depart, do you want to let everyone know whereabouts they can find you online, bud? Yep. You can find me on Twitter at Scottish Juggalo. You can hear me on One Man's Meat Podcast. You can hear me on Back When. And you can hear me here next week with the great Cy Powell, where we'll be talking about the post um, NWO episode of uh, Natural Nights. We will indeed, Danny. We will indeed. Uh, Keep your eyes open, everybody. Keep your eyes peeled on our social media accounts at Nitro underscore Nights on Facebook and Twitter for news of the NWO bonus episode dropping. It will be out. Well, it'll be out whenever as soon as we get it done uh, sometime after this episode dropping. It won't be long. Just keep your eyes peeled for when it comes out. It will be a bonus show. It could drop any day of the week, depending on when we get it finished and so on. Uh, but everyone will be aware of when it's out because we'll publicize it as much as we can. Uh, it's all on, on all of our social media accounts at Nitro underscore Nights. Or you can subscribe on all your podcast players at Nitro underscore Nights to get notifications of when episodes drop. So you will find out the moment it arrives on your interweb machines uh, for anything involving myself you can check out shows that i'm on via the network that carries this show and that's at sjp world media on facebook and twitter and again all your podcast players so many brilliant shows covering tv music film modern wrestling nostalgia all that sort of stuff 
so much there go and check it all out and again like subscribe follow all that good stuff at sjp world media and at nitro underscore lights danny it's a new age my friend it's a new start it's a new world order i'll speak to you next week my friend take care mate and to everyone else as always thank you for listening